You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 68. Today, we're going to be talking about food production with Andrew Johnston, who is the produce category manager at Willie Street Co-op, which is in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us and um, sharing your knowledge. Um, I guess, can you start by telling us how you came to work in this field and specifically your position, your current position? Yeah, well, um, see, I started with the co-op in 1992, so I was a student at the university and was hanging out with some friends, and one of them had just gotten a job at the co-op, and they were like, oh, it's such a cool place. Um, um, and so I got a job in the produce department there and I actually really liked it. I had grown up in a rural community in central Wisconsin and had worked on, uh, farms there seasonally in the summertime. So had some background in agriculture and this just, you know, it was, it was interesting, you know, to see this different side the other end of the supply chain, so to speak. Um, And certainly, uh, you know, I think working in a co-op, being introduced into a co-op at that time was also very interesting. We had one store, um, I think we had roughly 35, maybe 40 employees. And, you know, today we have three retail sites, a central office, production kitchen, 450 employees. So a little bit different back then, Um, but. Well, it sounds like you've seen on uh, the co-op through a lot of changes. So this will be a good insight into um, how that model works as well as kind of the changes you've seen through the years in the food system, I think. So let's talk about the traditional, uh, quote unquote, model of food production in the U.S. Um, as it currently stands uh, and increasingly as we're seeing around the world. Uh, what does this look like and is this how it's always been structured? Well, you know, I don't think it's always been structured um, how it is. Currently, it's, you know, centralized Southern California, um, the Central Valley large farms, huge farms, um, miles and miles of farmland, um, low cost labor, um, not very diversified uh, with centralized distribution. Um, You know, California is producing just tremendous amounts of fresh fruits and vegetables getting distributed across the entire United States. Um, For some crops, it's 100% of what you see in the grocery store, grapes, avocados, spinach, lettuce, greens. They're all coming out of California. Um, Yeah, so it sounds like what we have is is a lot of big farms producing... um, the majority of the food, whereas maybe in the past it was more uh, smaller farms or, you know, people growing their own food and a little more localized. Um, Is that? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that is correct. You know, you had um, 
you know, areas um, around New York City that supplied New York City with food. Um, all of the major metropolitan areas were supplied most likely with uh, fresh fruits and vegetables from around that region, you know. Um, and, you know, certainly when we think about population growth, that land becomes incredibly expensive, very difficult to uh, continue to farm when you, you can make a living selling your land. Um, and also just, you know, having enough uh, acreage to supply that demand and a workforce to do it. I mean, California, historically, um, they have a skilled workforce who, you know, have been doing it for 200 years since the Spanish came in. Um, they have been using that uh, indigenous labor almost as slave labor. Um, so hard to compete with that. Well, and even today, a lot of the workers, unfortunately, are undocumented or, yeah. you know, not making a living wage. So um, yeah. that is a whole other issue as to why food is as cheap as it is. You know, it's not really the true cost of, of what we're getting. Right. right, exactly. So. Um, well, you've kind of touched on my next question, but um, why and how did we shift to the current model that we have? I know you said kind of population growth and land yeah. availability, but are there other factors that maybe led to these mega farms growing, you know, one or two crops each? Well, you know, I would like to think that it was really just, you know, a, a desire to improve. I don't think they were thinking very far ahead as in, you know, like, monocropping and all the effects of that i think they were really looking and saying like hey how can we how can we supply a nation with food at a reasonable cost and uh, you know if you look back at the 40s and 50s and 60s the advancements in technology <laughs> you know for better or for worse you had you had technologies that came out of world war ii um and they applied that into agriculture, you know, whether it be mechanical equipment, herbicides, pesticides, they had all of these, all of these new tools that they could utilize. And, you know, they, they applied them to agriculture. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason there was a big shift, you know. Um, I think the land, a lot of it was being farmed, um, you know, maybe smaller farms, um, you know, more independently owned. Um, but again, you know, there were opportunities there where even those farms saw it as an opportunity to, hey, you know, well, I can... I can I can be a part of this larger branded operation and I'll plant and I'll cultivate and they'll come in and harvest and market my product for me. Um, 
So, you know, I really think it was about, you know, taking advantage of some of the technologies and opportunities that, that just were there at that time. Um, Do you think that advancements in um, refrigeration and, and just personal cooking methods in general um, played a role in that? And in oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I th yeah, I, you know, I mean, this is a, this was a pretty broad topic, you know. I think when you when you look historically back there, and you know, TV dinners. I mean, that was a that was a big thing. You were doing well if you were eating TV dinners. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you were opening a can of beans and and you know, the, like those things. Uh, you know, society as a whole. I think we saw. Uh, a greater shift into urban areas. We saw an increase of women going into the workforce and having careers. There was a desire to have, uh, I guess, more uh, con convenience in your in your food. You know, and certainly frozen food, canned food you know, refrigeration technology. I mean, they went from being small, inefficient, um, and not everybody even owned them probably up until, I don't know, mid-century, um, which seems crazy, but it's true. Well, now so. we're so spoiled with choice and, um, like, we don't have to think about, is this in season? Can we get it? Right now, we can get anything anytime. I mean, you could go to the store yeah. and get an orange any time of the year. And yeah. the past yeah. that and was a novelty. Yeah, we have that expectation as consumers, right? Yeah. Where if we want to eat strawberries in January, we can eat strawberries in January. And mm -hmm. if we want to eat citrus in the middle of summer, well, it's you know, we can. Yeah. You know, and it's coming from the, the southern hemisphere. Um, but that's the expectation that we have. So, yeah, it's, um, it, it's definitely uh, going to take a mind shift to get away from that. If we want to eat more locally, I think, and, and absolutely not feel like a sacrifice that we're giving up these things, yeah. but, you know, when you eat them, when they're seasonal, it's more like a treat. almost. Yeah. Well, you know, I can tell you from my experience, um, which I find very interesting, uh, you know, bananas, you look at, you look at those crops that are either tropical or are extremely seasonal um, and very dependent on a specific climate. Those are the top selling items in the produce category, not just at the Willie Street Co-op, but across the entire country. Bananas, table grapes, avocados. You, top three items in the produce department, which for almost all of us, they're not produced locally at all, you know? So it's just interesting. Like you said, we've created a monster in some ways. <laughs> yeah, we have, um, you know? Well, so, um, 
you you kind of spoke to this earlier, but when we talk about large scale farming and the justification for it is that it's you know more productive, it increases yeah. productivity and the ability to to grow more crops. Is this actually the case in the long run when you think about one all of the inputs you have to put into those systems to keep them going, whereas a more natural system kind of does a lot of that itself. Yeah. Um, and two, the fact that maybe we're producing crops that are less resistant and then they end up either going extinct or, or dying out yeah. because, yeah. you know, a pest hits them or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, I think, you know, if, if you look at it in its simplest terms, you've got your inputs and your outputs and if, if, if your inputs are significantly less than your outputs, then that is productivity, you know, from an economics definition. Um, and I, I think that there is some truth to that, you know, certainly, uh, certainly there are efficiencies that you gain, um, but, you know, as you were saying, they come with a cost, you know, over the long term. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that. I don't know that the, that the industry was looking that far ahead. And uh, when they shifted to this model, I don't know that they were thinking about that. You know, they, they were thinking strictly about productivity, efficiencies. Um, you know, certainly there was probably, you know, financial gains to be had there, which was, you know, likely a motivator in this as well. So as we learn about some of these long-term consequences and um, just the benefits of more localized food systems from the terms of, you know, emissions um, released when they're transported and, you know, the labor and the economics and everything, um, it seems like there has been more of a focus on shifting back to kind of a more small scale food production. Um, it, are you seeing that or can you speak to, you know, why this may or may not be happening and kind of any trends you've seen in that area? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think you're correct. Um, I think there is. And I, you know, my observation is, you know, I think one, like consumers, kind of shifted away from that processed TV dinner, canned beans, wanted fresh product. Um, I think advances in technology, uh, mostly in communications, right? You know, we've got, we've got our cell phones, we've got the food network, we've got all these magazines and publications, just so much access to uh, information um, that, that, that value of, uh, you know, what good food is, you know, it kind of started pretty slow there in the eighties and picked up steam in the nineties. And by the early two thousands, you know, just how we were preparing our food, everything changed, you know, I mean, I grew up, I was a, you know, product of the seventies and eighties and my mom boiled asparagus till it was gray and stringy and, you know, I mean, we would never consider eating that now, you know? Um, 
so I think that that shift to, you know, in, in what we value in food, um, you know, I think that was the impetus there, you know, and I think that people recognized that and there were opportunities, um, you know, a lot of the farms that I work with, um, they have been, well, they started in the late 70s, early 80s, when they saw those opportunities. Um, and, you know, it just grew from there. You know, farmers markets. I think Dane County in Madison, where I live, we have one of the biggest farmers markets in the United States. I mean, it's amazing. There's hundreds and hundreds of producers, um, you know, and people love that. Like you can go, you can get really fresh, uh, really fresh product. You get different varieties than you'd see in the grocery store. And it's just incredible, you know? So I think there's that, you know, that demand, that value of the local product being fresh, just being ex exceptional quality. That's what people, you know, they, they, they've grown to want that, you know, and they, I think a lot of people also understand, have a better understanding of uh, the implications of the large scale farms, right? Um, you know, again, we've got access to information so much more than we had 30 years ago. Um, that we've just, you know, we've become more educated about that. And uh, as, as we've had more choices, we've gravitated to incorporate more locally produced food into, you know, into our food chain, um, you know, and, and, and from a, an environmental footprint point, you know, I think that there's arguments for, for both sides there, right? You know, if you have 40 different small farms running trucks all over the place versus, you know, an entire semi loaded with apples, one product. It, you know, I, I've read different articles about the efficiencies there and, and I think you know, it goes both ways. Um, but I do think that there's definitely a lot of value in supporting a more local food system. You know, overall, I think the benefits outweigh um, the, the cons. Yeah, and I think there's, from a consumer standpoint, like a novelty to being involved in the food production, even if Oh, yeah. You're just going to a farmer's market, but you're meeting the person that grew your food. Or you oh, yeah. can go to the farm directly sometimes and pick your own apples and Absolutely. pumpkins. And grow you can more. volunteer. Yeah. So I think uh, the, the trend in that area is promising because people are excited about, you know, being oh, a part of the absolutely. process. And absolutely. growing their own food, even if it's a measly little garden that doesn't give you anything. But, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when I first started at Willie Street Co-op, um, we had a volunteer program um, and members could sign up for volunteer shifts. 
Oh, it was so long ago. I can't remember what their benefit was. They got like a discount, you know, uh, like a, a, a 20% discount or a 10% discount. Um, but talk about a great way to, to be involved and, and develop a better understanding of where your food is coming from. Oh, it was awesome. Uh, illegal, which is why we don't do it anymore. <laughs> uh, but, you know. That was the co-op way back then. <laughs> well, and um, I, I love that there are so many community gardens cropping up now. You know, where I'm yeah. from in Texas, um, they started a, a couple of community gardens that give the food away to local community, to the folks that help work it. Yeah. Uh, and you, you probably don't even have to work it, honestly. You just, if you need it, they'll give it to you. But it's it's nice to see that some of the vacant space in these cities and communities is being used for something productive like that so yeah well it's interesting you bring that up you know um you know preparing for this i, I, I was thinking about city planning you know and, and honestly if you know if we had the foresight dedicating land use for agriculture you know i i think that rooftop gardens yeah, yeah. there's so much potential there in the cities too yeah yeah you know, um, I think we missed some opportunities. You know, we just didn't have the foresight then. Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe now as people are, are becoming more aware of these things and the need is increasing with the growing population. I mean, we've got to figure out ways to grow food in, that doesn't tie up acres and acres of land, whether it's hydroponics or vertical growing or, you know, rooftop gardens or whatever. But um yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunities out there if people just you know, yeah put their minds uh, yeah it. <laughs> yeah it, it, yeah it's interesting you know uh, I see a lot of those products mm, become available and it, it's it's challenging I think applying the technology you know we had talked about it about how how large scale farming kind of became the norm and talking about cost of equipment and whatnot. And I think when we talk about, uh, you know, some of the urban, uh, you know, greenhouses and whatnot that are, they're incredibly, they're utilizing technology that is incredibly expensive. I mean, these places are, all run, not all of them, but they're using um, AI. You know, they're controlling temperature, moisture, light. Everything is just—it's unreal. Like you really don't need a lot of uh, a lot of human labor there, other than to harvest and pack the product. Because otherwise, it, it's everything is just—it's all computerized. You know, and uh, you see that a lot with uh, the equipment on these larger farms as well. It's it's really incredible. Yeah, I think I saw an article recently that said John Deere is partnering with Starlink to hook up all of their tractors to the Starlink system. And I was like, a tractor hook is hooked up to satellites now. Like, who knew that was even a thing that was yeah. needed? But you know, yeah, well, in and, and, you know, we talk about like the large scale agriculture, but that they're hooking that tractor up 
to the satellite to help prevent soil compaction, right? So that so that tractor isn't taking the same route every year when it's harvesting or whatever. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, it is. It's really interesting to to learn about those things and see how they're applying that technology. You know, again, I think the industry is becoming more aware of all of those challenges, you know, be it pesticide use, um, herbicides, soil compaction, erosion, all of that um, on the large scale. You know, it's it's really the, the small farmers who brought that to the public's attention. And I think the demand for a product that people place a higher value on, right? I mean, we talk about value and 30 years ago, it was the price. And now when we talk about value, we're talking about the quality of the product, the, the uh, environmental footprint, what level of uh, inclusivity, um, you know, is the company striving for? There's all of these other components that factor into that value, right? And it's just, we didn't have that years ago. You know, that just wasn't a thing. It was, eh, I can get cheap produce and that's what I value. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you, you framed it that way because I know, yeah, a lot of people look at food and just think, what can I get cheap? But yeah, yeah you're not getting a lot of times the nutritional content or right. you're you're paying for you know basically someone that's not getting paid um so when you start thinking of it in a way of okay am i supporting an ethical company am i supporting someone who's local and giving back to the community um yeah there there comes a point where you're like why am i why is it for for a dollar or for for a euro for this you know vegetable yeah. that's clearly worth more than that um you, you got to start wondering you know what's going on behind the scenes and a lot of the times in the u.s especially the food is very superficially low because of you know government subsidies and things like that that <clears throat> encourage things to be grown that probably shouldn't be grown but that's a whole other <laughs> right yeah yeah and that's not really you know my area of uh, expertise there you know i i, I think that that probably is is more you know commodity crops where you're looking at corn and wheat and soy stuff like that subsidized by the government um i was reading an article this morning um they were talking about weather freezing weather in california and northern mexico in the desert um you know but basically just saying you know uh it's supply and demand for the fresh vegetable market um, because it's not subsidized by government. So whatever they can sell it for as low as they want, or they can sell it for as high as they want. Yeah, for sure. There's some, um, a lot of inputs into that stuff that you oh have to gosh. think about. Yeah. Um, well, I know we've talked about kind of the, the large scale farming and then the small scale farming, but Let's. I'd like to hear more about the co-op model. I know that's not um, directly how the food is produced, but it's how the food is a lot of times, you know, gets to the consumer. Yeah. And it's a different model from 
the either the farmer's market or the, the grocery store that yeah. you think of. So so can you talk about what that looks like? How is it different from, you know, other sorts of stores or, or ways of getting food out to consumers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, in some aspects, it's very similar to a regular grocery store, right? So, um, or the larger food system. It's just that it's a much smaller scale. So I think on the large food system, you have, uh, you know, huge retailers, the Walmarts, the Targets, Kroger's, uh, contracting with, um, you know, Driscoll Strawberry or Driscoll Berry Farms and saying, you know, we're going to buy this and we're going to pay this price for it. Working directly with small local growers, um, we sit down every year with all of the growers independently, um, ask them if there's any changes to the farm, um, to their crop lineup. Um, and then we go through the list of products that we've purchased. We make agreements so that they can plan and they know that Willie Street is, we're going to buy whatever product it is that we agreed on. We're going to buy that from them, you know, and, um, we do our best to, you know, maybe provide them with, you know, an average of we're good for 10 cases of kale each week or, you know, a hundred cases of broccoli, whatever it is so that they can plan for that. Um, we do also work with distributors because we need to sell grapes. We need to sell bananas, things that, you know, don't grow in our area. But if it's, if it's available seasonally, locally, um, we prioritize that. You know, and we work directly with those farms. Um, we set up order delivery schedules with them so they know, yep, you can expect um, you can expect to see our orders whenever you, what whatever day it is and by whatever time you need them by. And then we have that expectation that we'll see that delivery whenever what whatever day we agreed upon, you know. Um, because it's 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 really a two-way relationship, right? You know, it's it's good for us um, to have that local product. It differentiates us from other retailers, um, and it's also good for them, right? Like our businesses go hand in hand. When one of us is doing well, the other one hopefully is doing well, um, and it's really about you know a high level of communication. Um, in the bigger picture, if you look store wide, um, we, uh, you know, package grocery, if we're talking about like cereal and canned goods, you know, we're working with, um, a larger distributor there, um, and a group, uh, an organization called NCG, which is national Co or uh, national cooperative grocers um, and that organization kind of acts similarly to like the walmart or the target for all co-ops that are members 
of that organization. So they go out and they negotiate cost. And if you're a member of um, NCG, you're buying that product. They work with the distributor. So you're buying that product from the distributor. The cost has already been agreed upon. They set up promotions, all of that. So in a way, similar, just a smaller scale. And again, it's, you know, the, the, the benefit of pooling our resources together as co-ops across the country that enables us to stay competitive, right? Because when you go into a grocery store today, it doesn't matter what grocery store you go into, there are products that align with our product line. It might be a different label, but you've got organic black beans, you've got organic pastas, you've got organic yogurt. I mean, you see those products everywhere. And, you know, it's, we, we have to be somewhat competitive, you know, otherwise we'll just lose that customer base. Um, you know, but it's really, it's, it's, it's the local aspect, I think, that really differentiates us. And even for those packaged goods, we do see a lot of, uh, have a lot of relationships directly with very small manufacturers here in the area, right in the area. You know, they're producing salsa, chocolates, um, you know, ice cream, stuff like that, which is great. It you know, sounds like a lot of the stuff you could get at a farmer's market, except you could get these week yeah. every day versus having yeah. to wait to the weekend. Yeah. And, and you know, it, I think what benefits us, I don't know if it benefits the producers all that much, is that the larger stores, don't have systems set up to work with those smaller producers. Like they just, they don't, they want one or two trucks coming into their loading dock. Everything that store needs on those trucks where we have truck after truck after truck coming into our docks. Um, you know, so it's a little bit different. Um, but well, come Co-op models differentiate us. Yeah, it sounds like it's good for those farmers who can't necessarily compete on a national level, but still have enough product that they need a guaranteed, you know, I'm going to yeah. sell this much, or yeah. if I grow it, what's going to happen if it doesn't? So by partnering yeah. with the co-op, they know, okay, they'll take this much of it. Maybe I'll sell this at a farmer's market, whatever, but... Um, they can kind of diversify and guarantee at least a certain yeah. amount of income. And yeah. then also it gives the consumer, you know, the local options that they want and some of the maybe national options um, for packaged goods or whatever, like you were saying. But yeah, yeah no, it's awesome. Um, we've had relationships with some of the farms, um, boy, ever since I've started working there. So I think they've, some of them have been supplying the co-op for 35 plus years. Um, and over those years, um, a lot of them started out at farmer's markets. Um, that's how they started their businesses. Um, then they started working with Willie Street Co-op. There were a couple other small co-ops in the Madison area. 
um, at that time who also were sourcing directly from these growers. Um, you know, and, and over the years to see how the different farms strategize their sales, branching out into uh, CSA, community supported agriculture, farmers markets, retails, um, kind of seeing that and then watching them kind of level off and say, okay, well, here's what works well for my farm. You know, we have some farms that did all three of those things and now they're only doing wholesale or they did CSA farmers market and wholesale and now they're only doing CSA and farmers market. Um, you know, so it's a, I, don't know, I think finding what works best for their farm. You know, like what is the scale of their farm? Can they reliably supply a grocery store with food? You know, and coming to that realization of holy moly, this is way more than I anticipated, but I can put together 300 boxes of produce once a week and I can have a CSA. So. And I can go to the farmer's market on Saturday and take whatever I didn't pack up. So I think it works good for them. And, uh, you know, it's, it, Madison is, uh, I don't know what the population is, but um, it's really amazing how many organic local farms are around the central Wisconsin and in Wisconsin in general. You know, it's, it's awesome. Like we just, there are so many, it's unreal. Well, and uh, I don't, I can't believe I didn't think of this before, but since you're in Wisconsin, are you guys selling a lot of dairy? And, you know, is that, is that one of your big uh, partnerships is with dairy farmers as well? I mean, since we've been mostly talking produce. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's a actually. selfish question for me because I love cheese, but. Yeah. Well, of course we've got yeah. plenty of cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's locally produced. We do, you know, offer a lot of, uh, I feel like cheese is, has kind of become like the microbrew industry, right? There's just like small, you know, little cheese makers popping up everywhere. It's crazy. Artisan. Yeah, they've all got these artisan like cheeses that are super incredible. And, um, but yes, we do work with a lot of cheese, local cheese producers. Um, and dairy as well. There is a uh, oh, a dairy farm. They offer both, uh, they call it traditional and organic milk. Um, and it's just incredible. Um, their chocolate milk is one of the best things on this planet. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Speaking my language. Well, I, I next time I'm in Madison, um, I have been a few times so I will have to check out the co-op and but um, I've never unfortunately lived in a city that had one other I do have a farmer's market here but I guess yeah. I'd encourage our listeners to look for that because sometimes maybe they've seen this the co-op sign and not really known what it was or maybe thought oh I have to be a member to shop there which I guess that that is a question because some of them are membership based do, do people have to pay a membership or sign up to actually shop at this co-op anybody can shop at the co-op Okay. Anybody can shop. 
Um, you know, there are some benef benefits to membership as far as uh, mm, you get a vote. Um, and it's generally, you know, I mean, realistically, members, you know, they're not voting on every single product that we carry, but they're voting on the direction the co-op is going in, um, things like that. Um, you know, they have a voice. Um, but anybody can shop at the co-op. Sometimes you may not be privy to the good deal that's happening on a specific product unless you're a member. But we have several different promotional programs that, you know, provides benefits to membership, but also other programs that you get the sale price regardless. So, um, but yeah, anybody can shop at the co-op. So Awesome. Yeah. Well, again, listeners, if you are in an area with a co-op, um, especially Madison, check it out and, and see what they're about and um, support local. I think is the, yeah. is the best, <laughs> the best uh, reason to do that. Um, I guess uh, before we, we move on to the green light packs, um, you know, We've talked a lot about the environmental impact of local food production and the health benefits and things like that. But uh, what role do they play in local economies? Because a lot of times that's the only thing that matters to people is, you know, the money. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot of things going on there. Um, you know, the co-op itself. Uh, we have community reinvestment, um, you know, and, and and the businesses, the local businesses, farms that we work with, you know, it's just, it's hard to pinpoint it, right? But I mean, we can say, oh yeah, they provide jobs. Yes, that money stays in our local economy. Um, but I think it's bigger than that and, and maybe not as tangible as that. You know, I think that it it really provides a sense, a greater sense of of community and responsibility towards each other. You know, um, so I mean, that's that's how I see it. It's great. I mean, I like I said, I've worked there for thirty years, and I've watched people come in the store with their kids and now I'm watching their kids come in with their kids. Um, you know, so it's, it's great. You know, I, I think that, you know, that, that, that sense of, I don't want to say belonging, but you know, that, 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 you know, we really, we believe in what we're doing, you know, like we're looking for something better than the status quo. So. Yeah. I, I love that. And I love anything that gives you a unique shopping experience. And it sounds like co-ops are definitely one of those. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for being on and talking through all of this. Um, do you have any resources you would share? Thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you have any resources you'd share with our listeners um, if they want to learn more about food production, procurement, uh, farming, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Um, I think the Equal Exchange website 
is great. Um, they do great things. Fair trade, and they've got all different sorts of products. Um, but they're doing a lot of really great stuff. And, you know, you see so, so much negativity in the news because um, that's what sells. That's what we like to see. <laughs> Um, getting on Equal Exchange's website and just seeing that so much great stuff is happening out there. Um, so I like the Equal Exchange website, and I would encourage people to get on co-op websites. Even if you don't have a co-op in your town and you're not a member of a co-op, look up co-ops. They have great resources. They have newsletters. They do articles on producers, on production. Um, they're great. And you mentioned fair trade. Is that the uh, certification program for yeah. the way food is produced? Okay. Yeah, fair trade. Awesome. So there's a premium applied to that that goes directly to the producers. Good. So when people are complaining about having to pay a little extra, they know it's actually going to the folks making the food. Yeah. <laughs> Not and a corporation. Yeah, and the great thing about Equal Exchange is that they, they, uh, there's transparency there, and and they just make that very accessible. Now you, you can get on there and and you can see what programs those communities, those growers are working with those communities, and they're deciding what to do with that money as a community. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for sharing those resources. Um, I guess we'll move on now to our green life hack. And this is the part of the show where we just share a tip or a product or an idea for ways that people can live more sustainably. Um, so, Andrew, would you like to start us out? Well, I'd say buy locally when you can and don't throw food away. <laughs> preserve it. Um, that business, you know, the garment industry, I think if that were loss was a business, it would be a fortune 500 top five company and food is not far behind that, which is a shame. Uh, there's so many things you can do. You can freeze, you can pickle, um, make jam, and it's going to be better than anything that you can go out and buy. So that's my hack. No, I love that. I am always looking for new ways to extend the life of food if I end up with too much. Or um, like recently I went on a long trip and I had a bunch of milk and stuff. And I was like, well, we're going to try to freeze this and see what happens. Because yeah. either way, it's going to get wasted. And it, it was actually okay. So um, I, I've Googled a lot of different weird things. Can I freeze this? Can I? How can I preserve this? So, no, yeah. I love that. Um, and, and you're in Ireland? I am in Ireland right now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have much smaller fridges here. So I've had to get very creative with how I store things and yeah, I imagine how much so. I buy. It's, yeah. it's a little difficult coming from the States. Um, well, my my life hack is, is sort of related to food preservation, and that's just to use a beeswax uh, wrap for your food yeah. instead of saran wrap or foil or whatever. Um and I have found that it works really good on cheese and veggies that you cut, you know, and you want to sure. keep half up. So it kind of lets 
the food breathe, but you have to experiment a little because not everything will work with it. It is cloth and it can get moldy if you, yep. you know, leave stuff in it too long, but um, they're, they're kind of infinitely reusable. If you take care of them, you can put more honey on them um, or, or beeswax and remelt it and have a new seal. So that's mm. my, my life hack for those <laughs> who are interested in trying. And you can probably get that at your local co-op. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're really adventurous, learn to make them yourself, but I haven't yes. gotten that far yet. So. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks again for being on. Uh, do you want to share where we can find you and or Willie Street Co-op online? WillieStreet.coop. Okay. So. Perfect. And right, well, thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you. And you can find um, me personally on Instagram and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. You can find the show on all social media, YouTube, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. So please do check us out, subscribe, give us a five-star rating, a thumbs up, whatever they let you do. Um, feel free to reach out with topic suggestions or your thoughts on any of the shows. Um, Andrew, it's so great talking with you. And uh, for everyone listening, have a great rest of your day. Alrighty, thank you. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network. 